Uh, Well, if you would turn with me to Luke chapter 5, we'll be there in just a moment. Luke 5, if you don't have a Bible, you can grab uh, one of the Bibles out of the pew. You can turn to 808, page 808, and uh, that will get you there. But you know, as we just sang about in that last song, pain and suffering, the the sorrow that we carry, it's all around us. We don't have to look far to experience it, to see it in the life of others. Some of you rolled out of bed this morning, and as you were hobbling your way to the bathroom, you did so with chronic pain that you've dealt with for maybe a number of years. Some of you woke up to a tear-stained pillow this morning because you cried yourself to sleep last night thinking about someone or some circumstances that are going on in your life or the life of a friend, a family member. You're grieved. Just last week, we opened our service focusing prayer on Afghanistan and and Haiti. Uh, Both of those situations have gotten worse. This week, we could add Louisiana, the Gulf Coast, to our prayer request list. And uh, we prayed for the Gray family last week. Elena's dad was not doing well. We prayed specifically in the service. And as most of you are aware, he passed away on Monday just before noon. We need to continue to pray for them as they move through the grieving process. Last Sunday night, my wife was on the phone with a family member whose husband had just left her and the kids trying to help walk through those circumstances. I, I had a a pastor friend that I had, had talked through some things with through another friend this week. And, and uh, by, by all accounts, he's faithful. He loves his people. But for the last four months, the people have just been leaving out of his church, going elsewhere and leaving him wondering, what, what am I going to do? What, it, what, it, what is going to become of this particular church? This, this week... We've probably all been faced with at least one more cancer diagnosis in our circles. Friends devastated by sickness, death, grief, all of the things that we face. Sufferers and suffering never seems to end. And it's no secret to many of you um, what probably shouldn't be. One of my favorite music groups of all times is a group called Cademan's Call. I don't know how many of you even know who that is, but I have a son named Cademan uh, because that's one of my favorite groups. And one of the songs that, that they sang years ago that w- really became one of my favorite songs, one of the reasons that I like them, came to my mind this week as I was considering Luke 5. It's a song called Love Alone. And uh, I just want to give you a couple snippets out of this. It's a song that I've actually sang before. Uh, we haven't done it congregationally. It's not that style. But it's a song about helping sufferers and seeing the suffering that goes on around us. And I just want to give you a couple snippets. One one verse says this, The hands that I've seen raised to the sky, they're not waving, but they're drowning all this time. And I try to build an ark that they need to float to you upon the crystal sea. The second verse really captures in a deeper way and says this, The prince of despair, he's been beaten but the loser still fights. And death's on a long leash stealing my friends in the night. And everyone cries for the innocent, but you say to love the guilty too. I'm surrounded by suffering and sickness, and I'm still working tearing back the roof. I love it because I can relate. 
As followers of Jesus, loving others is, is not optional. We can't, we can't plug our ears to the cries and the sorrow of the world around us. We can't, we can't cover our eyes and dismiss or just turn off the TV and think that their pain is gone. No, we're called to enter into the pain of others. I like how it's worded for us in the New Testament when Paul says that we're to rejoice with those who rejoice and we're to weep and grieve with those who weep. We're meant to enter into life with them. In this, in this life of suffering, prayer then becomes a key. Prayer becomes the lifeline for us to, to cast our cares on Him because He cares for us. To, to boldly approach the throne of grace so that we might find the mercy and grace to help us in our times of need. In prayer, the sufferers are invited to come to the Father. They're invited to come find comfort, to come to Jesus as we just sang. And if you doubt that invitation, consider for just a moment that in order for that invitation to come, Jesus had to come. It's why he did come. 2,000 years ago, Jesus came in the flesh to suffer as no man, woman, or child would ever suffer. So that he might redeem us. So that he might offer us new life, a new reconciled relationship with our Father, our Creator. But also so that he might redeem our pain. And what that means for us is that our suffering and our pain, not a moment of it's wasted. God uses every bit of it to accomplish his purposes in our lives. Every tear, every sleepless night, every panic attack, every throbbing pain in your heart, he will redeem. God promises that he will work through those things. And so, so today in our time together, I want to share with you just a, a snippet from the life of Jesus that exemplifies this, this care, this compassion, this invitation to come to him as a sufferer. And so Luke 5, 17 through 26. On one of those days as he, Jesus, was teaching, Pharisees and teachers of the law were sitting there who had come from every village of Galilee, Judea, Jerusalem, and the power of the Lord was with him to heal. And behold, some men were bringing on a bed a man who was paralyzed, and they were seeking to bring him in and lay him before Jesus, but finding no way to bring him in because of the crowd, they went up on the roof and let him down with his bed through the tiles into the midst before Jesus. And when he saw their faith, he said, man, your sins are forgiven you. And the scribes and the Pharisees, they began to question saying, who is this who speaks blasphemies? Who can forgive sins but God alone? When Jesus perceived their thoughts, he answered them, Why do you question in your hearts? Which is easier to say, Your sins are forgiven you, or to say, Rise and walk? But that you may know that the Son of Man has authority on earth to forgive sin. He said to the man who was paralyzed, I say to you, Rise, pick up your bed, and go home. And immediately he rose up before them, picked up, what, he had been laying, what had been laying on the ground, and, and he went home and glorifying God. And amazement seized them all, and they glorified God 
and were filled with awe, saying, We have seen extraordinary things here today. Would you pray with me before we think about these words? Father, we come before you asking for your grace. Lord, I ask that you would help me to clearly communicate Jesus. Lord, I ask that you would give us hearts to be receptive to your spirit today. We pray it in Jesus' name. Amen. So, as is always the case when we, we, we jump into the middle of a gospel, we're jumping into the middle of a bigger story, the storyline of Jesus. And here in Luke 5, we actually find ourselves pretty close to the beginning of Jesus' ministry, because if you go back a few verses, you'll see that he's calling his disciples. And then just after that, we see the extraordinary healing of the leper. That's a great story in its own right. But now Luke writes this, on one of those days as Jesus was teaching, and notice what he says, he describes the scene, there's Pharisees and there's teachers of the law who are sitting there who had come from every village, think about that, every village in Galilee and Judea and all the way from Jerusalem. And the power of the Lord was with him to heal. I want to consider a couple points here in this, this introduction that Luke gives us. First, Jesus is doing what he typically did. He, he was a teacher. That's what they called him, rabbi. He would go and he would teach people the truths of the kingdom, the coming kingdom. He would open up oftentimes God's word from the Old Testament, help them to understand it as to what it meant. But you know what happened when he did that? When he would teach those verses from the Old Testament, oftentimes it was contradictory to what the religious leaders had been teaching. It was something different, and, and he has the better authority. He is the author of the Old Testament. And so we immediately see that there's going to be a bit of a rub here as the Pharisees are listening to Jesus teach the people. But it also says this, and I, I love how, how Luke heightens the expectations as we move into this story, because he says, the power of the Lord was with him to heal. It's like Luke says, hey, I want you to underline this part in your Bible. I want you to note this because something significant, something really cool, is about to happen. He also makes sure that we understand that they're not alone, that the Pharisees are there, these teachers of the law are there, uh, they're sitting there, they're listening. These are the religious leaders of the day, uh, the, the, the ones who, who will within three short years order the execution of the one that they're listening to on this particular day. We know from the, the greater context of the Gospels that, that most of them are not there listening to Jesus because they want to learn something new. No, they're there to find fault with him. They don't like him. He's drawing crowds. He's, contradictor, he, he's contradicting them. And so they don't really like him even at this point in the beginning of his ministry. It doesn't take long as we'll see in our text today. And so with that setting in place, let's get into the meat of the story. And, and Luke signals the meat. Notice that word he gives, behold. Behold. He's like, hey, listen up. Pay attention. Behold what? Behold, there was a man who was paralyzed. There was a guy in this town who was unable to walk. Well, we assume he's from this town. May have been a few towns over. And the man's family, his, his neighbor's friends, their identities, relations are not mentioned to us. They put him on a bed and they carry him to where Jesus is teaching. 
Now, the text doesn't tell us a lot of things. It doesn't tell us the identity of the carers. It doesn't tell us whose idea it was. I think we can infer from the greater context that it was probably everybody's idea. Hey, let's get you to Jesus. And he says, hey, why don't you guys get me to Jesus? They obviously have faith that Jesus can do something about this man's situation and suffering. And so when they get to the house where Jesus is teaching, the crowds are too great. Too many people are packed in there. And so just imagine that these houses are not large. They're nothing like what we live in. And Jesus is inside the house, probably somewhat inside the doorway. And the crowds are getting as close as they can so that they can hear him. There's no microphones. There's no, there's no uh, amplification systems. And so they begin to pack in as tight as they can just so they don't miss a word that Jesus is saying. But not to be deterred in their mission when they realize the crowd is too great, they hatch a plan to carry this man to the roof of the house. Most of the houses during this time frame was just a, is a one-level house with a roof that was actually considered a second story. Sometimes people would sleep up there. Sometimes they would store their things up there. And there was typically an external either stairway or ladder of sorts that they could use to get there. And these guys say, let's do that. And they, they climb on the roof of the house. And, and the roof would be beams then with reeds laid across and, and other weird vegetation, whatever they could find, and then clay. And so these guys start digging through. They're going to dig a hole, drop this guy down into the room to where Jesus is. Now, just imagine that for a moment. I mean, one, the awkwardness of interrupting Jesus. I mean, you think about even in this moment, if, if Dustin just stood up and started spinning around and dancing in the middle of my, my sermon right now, that would be very awkward, right? In the middle of this conversation. And, and so, so that would be awkward in and of itself. Uh, Karen says, yes, his dancing is very awkward. Uh, if you, if you, if you want to know, <laughs> very awkward. Um, but then even, even beyond that, then Jesus is teaching. You're, you may be in the front. You may have a view. And, and all of a sudden, you see like these hands digging in. And then you see like this guy's legs dangling into the room. And this guy being lowered into the room. There's an awkwardness about this. The disciples probably try to intervene at least at some level. But I really, in this moment, I like to imagine Jesus. You know, when he sees that first dangling foot. I imagine a smile across his face. He's not upset that they're disrupting his discourse. I, I imagine a belly laugh coming from him to think of the extent that these, these people are going to to get this friend to him. Those are the things that are left to our imagination because Luke, he doesn't focus on that. Instead, he focuses on Jesus' words. When Jesus sees the faith of the man, when he sees the faith of the man's friends, he says this, man, your sins are forgiven you. I don't think that's what that guy was expecting. And it's certainly not what anybody else was expecting. So before we get to that, your sins are forgiven you part, let me, let me comment on their faith. Right, faith is, is trusting. Faith is believing in something. And so we often limit it into that particular vein. But, but their belief and their trust were evident to Jesus. And we could argue, well, Jesus sees the heart of people, right? He's God, so he could see the faith of these people. But even if you take that out of the equation, how else do we see the faith of these people? By their works, all the actions. 
It's faith that brought them to this place. It's faith that said, hey, let's not give up just since we can't get to him. Let's, let's dig a hole in this guy's roof. Let's drop our friend down. Let's, let's, let's make this really awkward and disrupt everything that's going on right now to see healing to our friend. Yeah, their actions led them to do all of these things. Their faith in Jesus is evidenced by their works, by their works. So now let's get to the importance of the sins are forgiven part. We gotta look at that last point if you're following along in the bulletin, the identity of Jesus. And again, we're left with our imaginations to consider the response of the man even hearing those words. He doesn't, he doesn't have a rebuttal. He doesn't say anything in return. But I have no doubt that he had never heard those words before. You see, to be a sufferer in the first century, to be a, 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 an, an invalid, a paralyzed individual during that time, you would have been marked as a great sinner. This guy did something terribly bad in his life to deserve this. And, and no, no priest, no self-respecting priest would have ever offered this guy forgiveness. As a matter of fact, most priests and the religious leaders, as we see even from the greater context of the New Testament, wouldn't have given a man like this the time of day. And can you imagine then the relief when Jesus looks at this man and says, your sins are forgiven. That's not what he came there for. Jesus gave him something far better than he came there to get. He just wanted the ability to maybe walk again if he'd ever walked. We don't know. But Jesus offers something better something more significant. Oh, what a beautiful, beautiful scene. Some of you feel the same way as the people in the first century. We struggle here with this doctrine of, of Pharisees that still lives and breathes. It, it takes up residence in our being. We equate suffering and pain with sin. Right? Certainly we live in a broken and a fallen world and sin is what has disrupted and brought such pain and brokenness. But when we see somebody having a rough week or they get in a car accident, we think, man, what did they do to upset God? Or when things don't go our way, we don't get the promotion we thought we were going to get, we think, God, where's the sin? What did I do? I thought I deserved this. This particular doctrine creates a vindictive and a bitter God. And that is not the father who sends his son. That is not the son who comes in love. That is not the spirit who, who pours out his love in our hearts as it says in Romans chapter five. I, I challenge you, banish that doctrine that teaching out of your mind and out of your heart. But again, Luke doesn't focus on the response of the man. Instead, it's interesting, he directs his attention towards the Pharisees, to the religious leaders who are there. Uh, the ones who have traveled from far and wide to potentially find fault with this new teacher that they call Jesus. And, and what is their response 
to Jesus' words to the paralyzed man. They immediately begin to question, who is this that speaks blasphemies? Who can forgive sins but God alone? I mean, can't you see them looking at each other in shock? <gasps> Did you hear what he just said? Did you hear that? Did I hear it right? Did he say, your sins are forgiven you? And see their smug faces. But also get a sense of the truth that they speak here. Because what they're saying is not untrue. Only God can forgive sins. Because sin is primarily against God. He is the Holy One. He is the Creator. We see this from plenty other places in Scripture. Therefore, only God can forgive sins. And so when they say this guy is blaspheming because only God can forgive sin, they're absolutely 100% right about the last part. That only God can do this. But what they don't understand, what they don't believe is that Jesus is God in the flesh. I mean, if I were to stand up here before you and to invite, uh, Nathan's probably the greatest sinner I know in the room, but to invite him and say, Nathan, your sins are forgiven. I'm a blasphemer. I don't have the authority to forgive Nathan's sins. I don't have that in me. Then yeah, I am being blasphemous. Jesus, who is able to perceive their thoughts, though, in this moment. Maybe it was miraculous. Maybe he can see what's going on. But I, I think it's written all over their faces. These guys are looking at each other like, I can't believe he said that. They're smug. They're arrogant. Jesus notes what's happening. And he says this, why do you question in your hearts? And he puts this question to him. He says, which is easier to say? Your sins are forgiven or to say, rise up and walk. So let's pause for a moment. Consider the genius of Jesus' question. <laughs> because this, which of these is easier to say, your sins are forgiven or to say, rise up and walk. Think about the situation that Jesus now creates. It's much easier to say to someone your sins are forgiven. Why? Because it's a pretty subjective statement. I mean, I, I can say, Nathan, your sins are forgiven. And, and where's the evidence? It's not as if I say that and all of a sudden, glowing halo appears above his head. And, and I can say it to that glowing halo appears above his head. There, there's no evidential proof that anything happened that I have the authority to do what I did. It's easy to say that, but to say, on the other hand, take up your bed and walk? Boy, you better be able to put your money where your mouth is. <laughs> because if he doesn't take up his bed and walk, you are immediately exposed as a fraud. Everybody in the room knows you don't have that authority. <clears throat> If I were to invite a paralyzed person and say walk, as some have been so bold to do in other circles, if that person doesn't get up and walk, I've exposed myself. I'm a fraud. The Pharisees, and I'm sure some of the others, think that Jesus is a fraud. 
And in this moment, I I believe they think they've caught him in the act already when he arrogantly says he has the right to forgive sins, which, by the way, is a claim that he is God. Because Jesus knows that only God can forgive sins. So in saying what he says, Jesus is making it very clear that he believes himself to be God, to be the one who has authority over mankind, over creation, the one who has authority over sin itself. And so he continues, just gets better and better. So Jesus says this next, but, but that you may know that the Son of Man has authority on the earth to forgive sins, I say to you, rise, pick up your bed, and go home. Jesus came to play on this day. I think this is why Luke sets it up so well. The Spirit, the Lord, was ready to do some healing today. Because Jesus puts all of his cards on the table on this one. First, he claims the name Son of Man from Daniel 7 to himself. And then he, he straight up says this. I have the authority to forgive sins. Bold statement. He's claiming, I'm God in the flesh. And he isn't done. Because he looks at the lame man. And he says, to prove all of the above. (laughs) Rise, take up your bed, and go home. And again, I imagine all eyes on him, this wide-eyed paralyzed man whose sin burden has just been lifted. He feels that sensation in his legs. Maybe for the first time. And he stands up. He leans down. Grabs his bed. Takes one step. Two steps. Three, four. And he's off. And he's glorifying God. And the people, the crowd, they're observing, they're looking. What did we just witness? See, these are, these are small towns. If, if a person who was paralyzed showed up here, there's a good chance we wouldn't know him. They knew this guy. This guy had probably laid and begged money from them. He was probably related to half of them in, in these small villages that were there. They knew who he was. They knew he'd been lame. And so the crowd is amazed and they too glorify God for what they've seen on this day. See, in this turn of events, Jesus offers clear evidence that he is God in the flesh, that he has the authority in himself to forgive sins. And I hope today that that you're here and you say, I believe that. I believe Jesus to be God. I have no doubt on that day that many arrived skeptical about Jesus being the Messiah, the anointed one, but they left with no doubts in their mind. Uh, Case number one, the lame man. (laughs) No doubt in his mind who he just met.
What more does Jesus have to do to prove his power? What more does Jesus have to do to prove his identity? If he wasn't from God, if he didn't have the authority to forgive sins, then why would God give him the power to claim that and then follow it up by giving him the power to perform a miracle? If he didn't have that authority or that power, wouldn't the true God have said, I'm not going to let you do this? The true God would have probably incinerated him if he wasn't who he claimed he was. And so the question that burned on the hearts and the minds of the people in that house 2,000 years ago is the question that should burn in our hearts and minds as we gather here and consider this event. Who's Jesus? Who is this guy? But I also have no doubt that many left that day with continuing doubts. Some left that day after witnessing the miracle after witnessing such, such cosmic authority, and they left rejecting that authority. They, they didn't want it. They didn't want a Messiah. For some of them, it came down to this. They didn't think they needed a Messiah. Many there, they didn't think they were bad enough to warrant the need for a Savior. Because they lived in that, that world that says, okay, as long as you do good things and, and more good things than your bad things, then you're going to be okay. But that's contradictory to what Scripture teaches because Psalm 14 tells us that there is none righteous. No, not one. There is none who understands. There's none who seek after God. We're not good on our own. It's not who we are. We need a Savior. For others that day, they didn't want an authority. They didn't want somebody who was going to tell them what to do, how they should live their lives. What they didn't realize and what we often don't realize either is that we're already under the authority of sin. Sin calls the shots and Jesus actually comes to say, hey, my authority will give you freedom from that. You'll be free from the chains, the bonds, the punishment even. Of sin. And the same is true of some of you today. You came here, you've been a witness to the event as we've walked through it in Scripture together. Just like that original audience 2,000 years ago. So, so how will you leave after observing the authority of Jesus? Rejoicing? Glorifying God in belief? That's who He is. Will you leave today forgiven because you've, you've made confession of your sin? Or rejecting? Pushing back? Maybe even saying, I need more proof. Today the question is, what will you do with Jesus? And my urging and my prayer this week, and I know the prayers of so many others, has been that today would be the day of salvation for those of you who are unfamiliar with Jesus. Today would be the day of belief. Do you know how it is that Jesus has the authority to forgive sin? And you may say, well, you just said he's God. God has the authority. But, but how? How is it that a holy God can, can forgive sin and make what's, what's, what's red white as snow? 
according to Scripture. Because Jesus died on the cross, taking our sin upon himself. Paul, Paul puts it this way. He says, he nails them there. He, he leaves them there. Jesus offers forgiveness because Jesus offers himself. He offers himself as substitute for you, for me. He offers himself as savior. Jesus could look this poor suffering man in the face, this, this man lying on the floor next to him, unable to move and helpless and say to this man, your sins are forgiven you. Because in three years, Jesus would hang on the cross and bear that man's sins. All of the times that that man complained about his predicament, he wasn't grateful, he wasn't thankful. All of the lustful thoughts that may have gone through this man's mind at different points in his life. All of the times where he was faithless to, to trust God and believe God. Jesus becomes those sins. He bears those sins on the cross. That's why he could look at him that day and say, your sins are forgiven you. There on the cross, Jesus became this man's sin so that he could walk out of the room that day forgiven. And the same is true of you. If we confess our sins, he's faithful and just to forgive us our sins, to cleanse us from all unrighteousness. Today, I urge you to place your trust in Jesus, in his authority and ability to forgive Confess him as Lord and Savior. And you, you can walk out of the room today forgiven. Forgiven. Guilt can be gone. Sorrow can be gone. But not only do we bring our sin to the Savior for forgiveness, but we also bring our suffering to him. This man's life had been hard. It was broken. It was full of, of grief physically, emotionally, spiritually. Socially, this man was an outcast. Because they believed him to be a great sinner, people would have not much to do with him. And, and many of you can relate to suffering on that level. And so today, I'm encouraging you to, to get to Jesus, to cast your cares, your pain, your sorrow, your grief on Jesus. Boldly approach the throne. He's not going to bring immediately healing to your body. He may, but that's not what I'm promising you. Like he did for this man, it was immediate. I'm not suggesting that he'll heal your broken relationships, your broken heart in the moment that you pray. But I assure you this, that in the trial, as we sang earlier, he will be with you. That he knows the pain that you experience. He's been tempted and tried in every way like we are yet without sin. And I also assure you of this, that the, the work that he has started in you, he will bring it to completion, and you can trust that truth. And then, and here's the good one, there's coming a day when he will make all things new again. And he says, I'll wipe away every tear. Death and sorrow will be no more. 
This is the assurance we have. This is why we go to Jesus with our suffering. In the moments of, of pain and suffering, go to him. And if you can't get to him like this man, man, call some friends. <laughs> Say, help me get, get to Jesus. This is the importance of having, having a, a church family around you so that in those moments you have people who can, who can help carry you to the one you need to go to. So let's talk about that for a moment. It's, it's, it's family and friend Sunday. And I assure you there's, there's no greater friend than the one you'll find in Jesus. But the reason I was, I was drawn to this story was those people carrying their friend to Jesus. Some of you may have had some people carry you here today. They're your friend. They invited you to come along. It wasn't so you could hear some great music necessarily or certainly not me. But Jesus, because Jesus is the message we play like a broken record around here. Because it's all about him. He's our hope. He's our peace. He's our comfort. It's all about him. I wanted to introduce you to him. And thank God for friends who care. As I even just reflected on this point this week, I think of the many friendships in my life where they've pointed me to Jesus at different seasons. Even here recently, just, just a text that will come along that's a scripture verse that just points me to Jesus. Are you a friend like this man's friend? When you, when you see people hurting and suffering, your first instinct should be, man, I got to get this person to Jesus. I got to pray for them right now. Or, or better, if possible, I got to pray with them right now. Or I got I to find some truth from God's word that I can share with them that will point them to the hope that we have in Christ. Or I got to get them into church. I got to get some, some help around them. Friends do whatever they can to introduce their friends to the greatest friend that we'll ever know. Jesus the Christ, the Savior. Do you know him? What do you believe about him today?